Thank you, Jamil and Marilyn, and for that good singing. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 as we follow these thoughts. Sing that, that great hymn. I can't help but think. You remember the telegram that Mr. Spafford got while he was in Chicago, saved alone. His wife and the children had gone on a ship across the Atlantic. The ship got intersected by a freighter, I think it was. She got separated from the four children. The four children all perished. She made it back to London and sent a telegram, the two words, saved alone. Changed his whole life. Mr. and Mrs. Spafford are buried in the old city of Jerusalem. They moved to Jerusalem, sold all his holdings in Chicago. Prominent businessman focused on living and sharing the gospel. And looking forward to seeing his children again. Part of the reason why we have such an assurance and a great hope, as the writer of Hebrews has been telling us, is because we have a great high priest in the heavens. What's his name? Jesus, the Son of God, he told us this morning, right? In chapter 4. It's no other. Just him. But he's all we need. And we want to work through now in chapters 6 through 10. We're going to do a jet tour through these chapters and highlight certain main ideas concerning our Lord Jesus, why He is superior to anyone else and anything else in terms of priesthood and mediation toward God. And we're going to look at it in terms of five different emphases. So if you're taking notes, you may want to write these down. You'll have to come back and look at these in a little more detail yourself. I'll just give you the skeleton. I won't be able to add the, uh, fill out the flesh part of the skeleton. You'll have to do that on your own. But just to give you something to think about, for those of you who are just wanting to think about the headings, first of all, he is a superior priest because his priesthood was confirmed by an oath. We'll look at that in a minute. Secondly, because of the greatness of Melchizedek, which his priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And he'll make some distinctions on why the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Thirdly, because he ministers as high priest in, a, in the true tabernacle, not the shadow of the true, which Aaron ministered in. Aaron, the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness and later confirmed as a temple by Solomon, was not the true one. It was a shadow, a copy of the true. As he quotes here, that's why the Lord said to Moses, See to it that you make this according to the pattern I showed you in the mountain. Because it's a pattern of the reality. Our Lord is there with the reality. Fourthly, because He's mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. And then fifthly, because His priesthood is built or based on better promises. Alright, so that's what we're going to work. We're going to pick up in chapter 6 in verse 13. Now let me just mention three reasons why our Lord, and I think they're obvious, but they're worth reminding ourselves, right? As we set out. Why does, some people would ask, well, this letter to the Hebrews, it's the only letter that makes such an emphasis on the priesthood of our Lord. Directly by name. Others make indirect reference to it. And, and why is that so? Well, I can give you three good reasons. There's probably a few more you could add to them. First of all, as we've already mentioned, the Hebrews would have a basis for the right kind of priesthood, God's kind of priesthood, because of the Aaronic priesthood they'd been under for 1,500 years under the Old Covenant. The Gentiles were not under that. They were not in that covenant relationship with God. They could come into the value of it as a proselyte. But the covenant was made with Abraham's offspring, his seed, Right? So they would understand that God's true idea of priesthood, and of course the Aaronic priesthood in many ways foreshadowed 
our Lord's priesthood. Alright? Secondly, because the Gentile idea of priesthood would be radically wrong and false. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians or to the Ephesians, to primarily Gentile churches, he's not going to bring in the idea of priesthood by name, by calling it priesthood, because in their minds, they would think of, well, that would be those pagan priests in their pagan temples with pagan rituals. Remember, as we said this morning, the, the evil one always wants to imitate God's true way, and the evil one was quick to do that all the way back to Nimrod after the flood. Genesis 10 and 11 tell us that, right? And the mystery cult and the mystery religions which began with him and his wife, Semiramis, and their son, Tammuz, and the cult of mother and child, Semiramis and Tammuz, that, that continues. The whole idea of the Madonna and all that goes back to him. Nothing new under the sun, is there? Alright, so those, those are two of the reasons. And then thirdly, because they understood the Old Testament teaching. So he could build on their knowledge of Old Testament teaching where the Gentile churches, Paul is introducing the character of God, the true nature of God, the life of walking in the Spirit. That's all new to the Gentiles, but to Hebrew Christians who had been trained under the Old Testament, the idea of the Spirit working in people, and that, that they were familiar with that. See, it wasn't a new concept. Now, none of those qualifications would, would, would we be considered part of anymore 2,000 years later, right? We're talking about first century Hebrew Christians, the ones he's writing to. But for those of us who are Gentile Christians now, well, most of us have been brought up on the Old Testament. We know the Old Testament. Most of us understand the Aaronic priesthood, the right order of priesthood. And some of us, not all of us, but some of us have not been exposed to a pagan form of priesthood. I was, but not everybody here in this audience probably was. So you don't have that contamination to work through, if you will, to, to rearrange your thinking on the right kind of priesthood. And, and we described in detail, I won't elaborate again, why a the concept, it's God's idea, the concept of priesthood is so important to bring us through, to keep us fruitful, to keep us close to the Lord, keep us pure for Him, and all those things, we are totally dependent and reliant upon our high priest for that. You say, well, also, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit, don't I? Yes. He talks about that, right? And I have the Word of God that will help me. Yes. But don't take away any of the provisions that God has made. He also has given you and I a priest. The Lord Jesus. You see... To tell us, die, it is finished, he said on the cross. His cross work is finished, but his work is not finished. He continues to work. He says that in John 5, right? The Father and I work, we're still working. As long as salvation's going on, we're working. Praise God, that's true. And so he's at the Father's right hand, working, interceding for us. You realize our Lord Jesus intercedes for us even when we don't ask him to? Aren't you thankful for that? You know, there are times when, when we are near disaster. We may, we may be, a disaster may be right around the corner, but we don't know that. We're ignorant. We're, we don't see it. We don't see it coming. But He's there interceding for us and protecting us as our high priest. It's a wonderful comfort. Great example of that occurs in Luke 22, 30 and 31, right? When He tells Peter, he said, "When the, you will, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and you will deny me. But I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, not if, but when, when you are restored, go and strengthen your brethren. 
And he wrote first and second Peter to do that very thing and still strengthening the Lord's brethren. So the first one we're mentioning here, confirmed by an oath, beginning in verse 13. Now, in, in chapter 6, the first 12 verses go with the verses 11 to 14 of chapter 5, and that's the third warning passage in the book. And it's significant, but it would take even more than one session tonight to work through that passage. So maybe we can do that some other time. I know some of you would be fascinated to look at Hebrews chapter 6, that early portion. But we're focusing in this. We've got six sessions, and we decided to focus primarily on the superiority of our high priest. The warning passages here are important. They're important that they're interpreted rightly in their context. But having given that, that third of five warning passages, he comes in verse 13 of chapter 6 and picks up with where he left off, in verse 10 of chapter 5. Remember he says in chapter 5, 11, of whom we have much to say. We want to say some more about him. This Melchizedek priest, king priest, the Lord Jesus. So he picks up with speaking about him. For when God, verse 13 of chapter 6, when God made a promise to Abraham, this is the Abrahamic covenant he's going back to, which would be significant, right, for the Hebrew Christians. This is going way back to Genesis 12 and chapter 15. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, Abraham obtained the promise. That will be repeated in chapter 11, won't it? For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. In other words, when God makes a promise, that should be enough. He promised it. He's faithful to His promises and His Word. But then He turns and He confirms that promise by an oath after that. He swears by Himself an oath after that. So thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, us, the immutability, the changelessness, of his counsel or purpose confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things, immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, we might have strong consolation, strong comfort, strong assurance. Now what what oath is he talking about? Well, he'll develop that in chapter 7 when he goes back to that quotation in Psalm 110, verse 4. And if you look down in chapter 7, and I hope you're seeing these with your own eyes in your own Bible because that's important, you notice that in verse 21, well, starting in verse 20, Inasmuch as he, the Lord, was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests, the Aaronic priests, without an oath, but he with an oath, and by him who said to him, the Father said to the Son, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you compare that with the quote in chapter 5 and verse 6. You see, compare the two of them. You see a difference? He, in chapter 5, he, hadn't, he wasn't developing the idea of the oath yet, so he doesn't give the full quote of the passage. But if you go to Psalm 110, and I encourage you to do that on your own, you'll see that the verse actually begins, as it's quoted in its entirety, in 721. The Lord has sworn. In other words, after the Abrahamic covenant, around 2000 B.C., a thousand years later, David writes Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God says through David that he has sworn an oath in addition to the promise. And, he, and that Aaronic priesthood was not confirmed by an oath. You say, well, that's all legalistic terms and legalistic matters. Well, that's true. But this is to build our faith. That's what he's trying to do. And it, and it should confirm 
and comfort our assurance to realize that the Lord Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, because His priesthood not only was given by promise, but also by an oath. You with me so far? So you agree with me? And you agree with the writer of Hebrews that our Lord's priesthood is superior? Yes, it is. But he has more to say. Each one of these trying to affirm and confirm our faith in the Lord. Why is that important? Because if we're not convinced, we won't go to him. Right? If we're not convinced he's a superior priest and that he's there at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us, if we're not convinced of that, we won't go to him. And the whole point of what he's trying to tell them is he wants them to go to the Lord in prayer seeking grace to help in their time of need on a more consistent, regular basis. That's what he's trying to get them to do. So the second thing we said was the greatness of the Melchizedek order. And that begins in chapter 7, verse 1, and all the way through 7.28 is really the essential topic there. And what he mentions here is, first of all, Melchizedek, King of Salem, chapter 7, verse 1, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And he'll he'll state the principle a few verses later. He says, now beyond, in verse 7, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So if Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Abraham's the lesser, Melchizedek's the better. Now we wouldn't know that if we didn't have that little three-verse account given in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, remember, had gone, uh, or Abraham had gone to protect Lot, Lot and, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and those five cities of the plain had been taken by Caradolomor and the, the Babylonians up north, and he goes after him, comes back, delivers Lot, comes back with the spoil, and Melchizedek comes strolling out of Salem, Jerusalem, in Abraham's day, a thousand years before it became the city of David. And Melchizedek comes out and and blesses Abraham, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, some say and wonder, speculate about Melchizedek. Well, was that the pre-incarnate Christ? Or was he an actual individual that lived in Abraham's day that went out to greet him? Well, I don't think there's anything in the text to indicate that he has to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Everything in the text would indicate that he was a real person. He comes out as king of Salem, blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him tithes. Now they say, well, yeah, but what about this without father, mother, without genealogy? What he's saying is that you go back to the Genesis account, and his genealogy and his parents aren't recorded. They're purposely not recorded, neither is his death recorded, so that he can be an adequate foreshadowing type picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made like the Son of God, he says. And because he, his death is not recorded, he can be a picture of an ongoing, continual priesthood. It's interesting, you know, of course, he's not a Hebrew. <laughs> Melchizedek is a Gentile. And he comes out and he blesses Abraham, who's received the Abrahamic covenant prior to this, 
And Abraham pays him tithes. And so he develops the argument then that, first of all, he has a continual priesthood, a priest continually. He'll say it in verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, you can imagine it this way. If you were under the Aaronic priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, right? And, you know, after Aaron dies, Aaron was a compassionate priest, maybe. And, and then his son, and, and then a few sons after him. And you happen to come to this son that, well, he's just not real compassionate. He's not real understanding. And maybe you've been coming to that priest with your gifts and offerings, and he was compassionate and nice and understanding, but then he dies. For 30 years, you developed a relationship with this priest in the ironic order, and he has an understanding. Oh, it's you again. I know you've got a problem with this particular area in your life, and you're bringing that lamb again. Okay, I understand, right? He's compassionate. But then he dies, and his son comes in as high priest now, and he's, he's not very understanding. So now you come with him a little trembling, wondering what kind of reaction you're going to get with your sin that you've committed, and you bring in your lamb. He says, oh, it's you again? And you sin that same sin again? When are you going to stop? And he begins to berate you. Well, the next time you sin, are you going to be really anxious to go to Him with that lamb again and that sacrifice? No. You're going to think of every excuse you can think of to keep from going there because you don't want to be berated by Him again. And you may live another 20 years, so you've got to endure this for 20 more years. Well, with the Lord Jesus, it's not like that. See, because there's nobody that's going to come after Him. He has an unchangeable priesthood because He lives forever. He never dies. So as we grow in our relationship with the Lord and we become closer to Him and we begin to have that confidence that He really understands me with all my weaknesses, with all my foibles, with all my frailties, with all my repeated sins that occur sometimes in my life, when we get into a cycle of sin, He understands. And, and I can be confident that He's going to always be that way because He's never going to die. You see the picture? Doesn't that make him superior to the Aaronic priesthood? Now, another difficulty that was true of these Hebrew Christians to whom he's writing that we don't have a problem with today, that makes it a little unique, the original audience that got this letter. There's a uniqueness about them that we don't have. And you know what that is? The temple was still standing. The Aaronic priesthood was still, well, they called it the Aaronic priesthood. It was really the Sadducees priesthood, which was hijacked. They had hijacked the Aaronic priesthood. They weren't Levitical priests. They weren't following the Old Testament anyway. But anyway, there was a priesthood with a temple, with sacrifices, with a bronze altar, and all of that. You say, yeah, but the veil was written too. Yeah, but they went back and sewed it back up. They quickly got in there and did that. Because they were going through the motions of an order that God had set aside. And the danger for these Hebrew Christians was that they could leave the Christian community, especially if they were suffering persecution, and go back to the temple. Now that could not happen again after 70 AD because the temple was destroyed. Secular history verifies that as well as the Bible, right? But this letter was written before 70 A.D. He says the temple was still standing later on in chapter 9. And so they have that temptation that they might be tempted to go back to the old order. And that's for them especially showing the superiority of our Lord Jesus' priesthood would be so significant, wouldn't it? It would be so important for them to see that so they don't go back. But there's an application there for us too. We're not Hebrews, most of us. And we didn't come out of rabbinical Judaism when we were saved, most of us, right? But we did come out of something. Whether it was a false religion 
or a cult or the god of materialism or money or some sort of a terrible addictive lifestyle where we were in bondage, we all came out of something. Amen? Whatever was our old life, what characterized us before we were saved. And now that we're saved, there's always the temptation to look at that old life and think about going back. You see the parallel? If we don't think our high priest is sufficient, if we think we're having to live this Christian life alone on our own, we may get discouraged when trials come, or even worse, persecution. That's a real test of faith, right? And we might entertain the idea and say, well, that wouldn't happen to me, brother. If you're saying that in your heart, you're already one of them. You're already one of them because you're recognize, you're not recognizing the weakness of your own flesh and you're vulnerable. Now one of the things that we're seeing which is a strange phenomenon in our day but organized Christianity is going back. It's going back to the pre-Reformation ideas of the church. Are you aware of this? I know Mike Atwood told me he talked to you about it a little bit, so, so he must have brought up some of those things. I don't know exactly what he said. But we're going, we're going full circle. We're going back to pre-Reformation ideas of the church, which the Middle Ages, which were wrong. Now, I think by the time we get to the rapture, Christendom is going to be, it's going to be almost unrecognizable from the church of the Middle Ages, which was very religious will give the church in the Middle Ages that. It was very religious. But it was so religious and legalistic, there was no Holy Spirit anymore. Because they were relying on themselves and their rituals and their ceremonies and all the things they added to the Word of God. And our young people, the rapture generation, I think of them, especially the real young ones, they're the ones that are going to be really tested by this and I already know some of them in some parts of the country that have already left Christian, New Testament Christianity as we see in the New Testament and gone back. So I know it's real. You say, yeah, but once they're saved, they're always saved, they come out, they'll never go back, will they? Well, if they're truly born again, they're always saved. Because eternal life has eternity attached to it, doesn't it? But someone who is born again and has eternal life, yes, can they go back to their old lifestyle for a period of time? It happens all the time. And you think God's pleased with that? No, He's not pleased with that. Because in a way, it's a slap in the face to the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Are you with me? It's saying that Christ's priesthood is insufficient. It's saying that His blood sacrifice is insufficient. You'll go so far in chapter 10, it's trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus and saying it's no different than the dung on the street, treating it like a common thing. That's serious, isn't it? And hence the warning is so important. It's so important to recognize this. So he demonstrates that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was the forefather of Levi, right? And Aaron was in the Levitical tribe. So therefore, through Abraham, Aaron and the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's what he's saying in chapter 7. You follow the argument? When Abraham did that, he was doing it for his whole lineage. And Levi and Aaron were in that lineage. And so, indirectly, they were paying tithes to Melchizedek. So which one's more superior? Aaron or Melchizedek? When the Aaronic order paid tithes. 
And as he says, he goes on to say here in chapter 7, there needed to be a change of the law. In verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. The prescriptions for the priesthood change. And we begin to see that unfolded in the passages with regard to the new covenant. Because in verse 13, he of whom these things are spoken is of another tribe. The Lord Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, is he? He's of the tribe of Yehuda, Judah, right? A different tribe. So he couldn't be an Aaronic priest, could he? Because he's not of the Levitical tribe. And so he testifies, verse 17, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Does that mean there's weakness in the law? No. Romans 7 makes that clear, and here he does too. The law is holy, just, and good. So where was the problem? With the people. (laughs) See, the, the Lord in His plan and program would not give the Holy Spirit during the dispensation of the law. Because the Holy Spirit couldn't come until the Lord Jesus had come and been glorified. John chapter 7, right? So, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And it was confirmed with an oath, as he goes on to say. So there was a continual priesthood, an unchangeable priesthood. Levi paid tithes to authenticate There was a change of the law of the priesthood, the power of an endless life. He's forever a better hope and assurance. And therefore, verse 25, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Now, the uttermost here isn't from the guttermost to the uttermost. It's not the idea of someone who is he's able to save the worst sinner. That's not what uttermost here means. It can mean that. But here in the context, it means he's able to save completely to the uttermost. In other words, what the Lord began, the good work He began in you and me, He is able to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the uttermost He's talking about. That gives us hope and confidence, doesn't it? That our priest is able to bring us through all the way to the end. So He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's still doing that. Even when we don't pray and make supplication, He's interceding for us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that assuring? For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. If He's become higher than the heavens, why would you take a priest lower than the heavens? Why would you take any substitute? That's his argument, right? And then, the third superiority he works out in chapter 8, 1 through 6. He is the minister of the true tabernacle. Aaron was in a tabernacle, was a shadow, a copy, a pattern, right? If your mom happens to sew and make dresses... And she uses a cutout, a pattern, to make the dress. When it comes time for your birthday and they're gonna, she's going to give you the dress, does she give you the copy or does she give you the dress? Does she give you the pattern and say, oh, here, put it on? No, you, you wouldn't be pleased with that. You want the dress. That's the fullness. The pattern is just a shadow, right? That's what he's communicating here. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. There's a theme statement right there. Here's the main point of what we're trying to say. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, he's already said that three different times in this letter, right? He's reinforcing the point. But now he adds another dimension a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. The true tabernacle. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, 
And if he were here on earth, he would be not be a priest, since there are priests there in the temple who are offering sacrifices, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly, as Moses was divinely instructing. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry than the old order. You get the superlatives, a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. And then he moves into this quotation beginning in verse 7 of Jeremiah 31. Now there's no reason some of us have read or heard of this idea of there being two new covenants. Have you heard that idea? But there's no reason to develop that concept from what we have in the Scriptures. There's one new covenant. You say, yeah, but Jeremiah 31 says that that covenant was made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And I'm not part of the house of Judah or the house of Israel. Yeah, but I'm part of Christ now. And Christ is the fullness of Israel, isn't He? You couldn't be any more Israel than Christ is. He's a descendant of Israel. He's a descendant of Judah, the family, the household of Judah. And because, this is where the unity of the body comes in, because I've been united to Christ, baptized into His body, according to Romans 6, into His death, burial, and resurrection, I've been baptized into Him. I'm one with Him. And because of my union with Christ, me, you as a Gentile, we can share in some of the promises of the new covenant. He tells us which ones. Eternal forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is consistent with all the other teaching of the New Testament. He says here in chapter 8, verse 7, and it, if you have a Bible, it's so important to see that. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So how many covenants is he talking about there? Two. A brother called me and asked me years ago. He said, Brother, I hear this idea of two new covenants. How many new covenants are there? I said, Well, how many old covenants are there? <laughs> That's, this is the verse I was working from. There's one first covenant and one second covenant. The first covenant is the old covenant. It has been set aside by God and only God could do that because He gave it. Only God could do that. Man couldn't do that. God gave the old covenant. But He says, because the first covenant has been set aside, place has been sought for the second. He'll say it even more clearly at the end of the chapter, verse 13. In that He says a new covenant, He has made the first one What's the word you see there? Obsolete. That's strong, isn't it? Only God could do this. And He has made the first one obsolete. So how are you going to... Can, can anyone now, today, approach God according to the first covenant? The old covenant? No. You can't approach God on that basis anymore. Because God Himself has made it obsolete and has replaced it with a better one. So what's it saying to God for us to say, well, no, Lord, I'd rather approach you under the Old Covenant. I'd rather do the animal sacrifices. I'd rather go through the Sabbath and all the different rituals, the Passover. I want to come to you on the basis of the Old. What is that saying to God? That's saying to God that, well, number one, that He's a liar because here He says that's obsolete. And number two, it's saying the blood of your Son is inadequate in my eyes, Lord. I need more which is blasphemy, isn't it? You see how important this is? In terms of our daily walk. He's made the first. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, he develops the idea of being a mediator of the new covenant and the better promises we've alluded to in chapter 8, verse 6. For the sake of time, let's move down to chapter 10, verse 19. 
having developed and proven the superiority of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus, a priest according to the order of whom? Melchizedek. He's a king priest. No priest under the Old Covenant could ever take the office of king. Jehoiada didn't even try to do that. He made sure he stayed in his office as priest because God had only one king priest, his son. Therefore, brethren, verse 19 of chapter 10, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. That's the truth he's developed all the way to this point. Therefore, since that's true, the first thing he says to characterize us as disciples of the Lord, you notice, is boldness to enter the holiest. Like the young boy that just ran right through the door into the conference room to the CEO to interrupt him. We should have boldness to enter the holiest, the throne of God in the third heaven. And you mean physically? No, not yet. You know, glorified bodies maybe, I don't know. But by prayer, by supplication, by intercession, we are to boldly do that. And the world says to us, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> What's your answer? I'm a child of the king. That's who. And we can show them the verses. We can show them why we have that boldness, right? And if we are holding back, that is lack of faith, isn't it? As he says in chapter 3 and 4, don't hold back like they did in the wilderness. Secondly, let us, verse 22, draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have a high priest, so let us be drawing near to him. That's in the present continuous tense. Continuously drawing near. You see, under the old covenant, he went on, we didn't read the verses, but you could never have a conscience totally clear of guilt. Because on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, you could, you would have it for that day, for that sacrifice, but as soon as you sinned the first time, you had to wait 364 more days for the next Yom Kippur. The Old Covenant could never give us that kind of confidence. But the blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful in its cleansing that our consciences can be clear of guilt. How long? Forever! And a guilty conscience is a terrible bondage. People tell me in secular institutions, mental institutions, 70 to 75% of the people that are there, I'm told by some medical doctors, are there because they're struggling with a guilty conscience. They're struggling with guilt and it manifests itself in a multitude of different personality disorders. But the root cause is guilt. Guilt is a terrible bondage. And so for a Christian to be struggling with guilt is to be lacking in understanding the truths that we've been looking at here, right? It's a wonderful deliverance to know that our sins are cleansed forever. And therefore we can be drawing near to the Lord in full assurance of faith. He's not going to throw us out. He's not going to say, what are you doing here? He's always going to be there with open arms to receive us. And we'll be holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Persevering by faith. He'll go on to say in verse 36, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Persevering faith comes from the Lord. And then 
that we might consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking assembling, but continuing to assemble together, not leaving the assembly of the saints to go to some other system or some other way of approach to God, but continuing to meet with the saints and to persevere by faith with the saints. And he says, not forsaking, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right. Let's think of this as we close now in a practical way. When we fail, when we make a mess of things in our lives, what are we to do? based on this study in Hebrews. We're to draw near. We're to go to the Lord. We're going to seek help, grace to help in our time of need and ask Him to cleanse and restore us. Right? He wants to do that. But He wants us to come to Him. You say, well, what if I fail the same failure seven times in one day? What did He tell Peter? Did you keep going and asking forgiveness seven times in a day? You keep going to the Lord and seeking grace to help in time of need. Secondly, when we get discouraged along the way, life circumstances, life trials, and you say, well, I'm not going through discouragement right now, but I know some of my brethren that are. Then what do we do? We intercede for them. We see a sister like Sister Adriana, just to take an example, going through the pain of migraines. Are we interceding for her quietly as well as corporately all the time until she gets deliverance from it? That's a terrible thing to have to struggle through. But we have the privilege of interceding and, and many others that we've been speaking about in prayer. We can be thankful that we're not going through it ourselves. And then when we go through our time, a physical ailment. We'll want the saints interceding for us too. Because that's what our high priest wants us to be like, you see. When trials and suffering come to us, he's there to carry us through, undergirding us like those cables on the ship out in the Mediterranean we looked at in Acts 27. When we need counsel and guidance, who do we go to? First, the Lord. He gives the light. Now, He may direct us to a brother or a sister that can help us, but the first one we go to is the Lord, asking grace to help in our time of need, right? When we need secure love, when we feel insecure about whether God really loves us because of life circumstances, there are people, I meet people in the churches, in the assemblies like that. We may enter into struggles like that of doubt and wavering. Who do we go to? Our great high priest. And ask for grace to help to secure us in His ongoing, unchangeable, unconditional love. When we're misunderstood, we try to help somebody in the meeting. And they don't thank us, they're not appreciative, and maybe even misunderstand us and accuse us falsely of doing something that we weren't even thinking of. We're misunderstood. Who do we go to? We get on the phone and, and gossip with a brother or sister that we think will empathize with us. You, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? We do this all the time, don't we? I'm guilty of it too. So these lessons are to me too. That's not healthy. Christianity. We're to go to our Lord, to our high priest, laid out before Him in prayer and believe that He will comfort because He says He will. And then lastly, if we have to suffer the pain of rejection when we're rejected by others. Now, one of the saddest things that we're seeing happen in the churches, the assemblies of the Lord's people today, is an unparalleled number of divorces. And divorce, I'm told, I've never been through the experience of it, 
I can relate to it to some extent in understanding the pain of it. But unless you've been through it, you don't understand the pain of the rejection that is involved with that. Those who have been through it say it's worse than death because the person is still alive and there's always that reminder. Who do we go to to get delivered from that pain of rejection? We go to our high priest, the Lord Jesus, and He assures us that He's forgiven us, that He loves us even if other people don't, that He'll be there for us even when other people won't be, that He will not throw us overboard, that He's already cleansed us if we've gone to Him, and He wants to restore us and make us useful again. When we begin to see Him in that light, why don't we go to Him more? Why don't I go to Him more? F.F. Bruce puts in his commentary, there's no hardship can befall a Christian that our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, does not sympathize. No matter how wide the variety, how diverse, he's there. So brethren, let's avail ourselves of this great ministry God has created for us. Priesthood, it's his idea. His son ever lives to intercede for us now. He went through strong crying and tears here on earth. He's acquainted with our sufferings, our griefs, our difficulties, and He wants to be there for us, but He wants us to ask. He wants us to seek grace from Him. Let's do it. Let's keep going to Him. Let's help others go to Him. Let's encourage others who are going through difficult times to rely on Him and Him alone. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, none of these things apply to you yet. We hope that as you think about the glory and superiority and the excellency of His priesthood, you'll realize that He's the one that wants to be your priest too. And if you come to the cross and cry out to the Lord, ask Him to save you, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 That's a promise. And then you too can rejoice with the rest of us in the ministry of our Lord's priesthood. So Father, we thank You, O Lord, for these encouraging, instructing, and challenging reminders from this very special book of your Bible, the book of Hebrews. We've only touched on some of the things and some of the truths we looked at today may be difficult to absorb. We understand. We pray you'll help us, though, to meditate on these things, enter into the value of them, and live the life that you've called us to live. Trusting in you, living by faith, enduring without wavering until you call us home through death or the rapture, whichever is your choice. Help us to be faithful servants of you as we ask in the Lord Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.